Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that we can find answers to all the different things we feel and experience. Thank you, God, for those answers coming to us through your word, and therefore we apply them to our lives through each other, friendships, relationships, songs, worship services. Father, may it be the case here today that your word comforts us, even as we just sang. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to the book of Nahum. If you didn't bring a Bible, it'll be page 859. And as I was preparing for this, I started laughing a little bit. You have probably never heard a sermon from Nahum. I probably need to give you extra time to find it, right? It's a small book in the Minor Prophets. It's only three chapters. There's not much to the story. It's after the book of Micah that we ended last week. It's the next in the minor prophets. They're not minor because of their significance. They're minor because of their size. They're major in how important they are and the message is. We've been through several. Today we move on to Nahum. There's not a lot known about Nahum. Possibly it's not even quoted in the New Testament. There are one or two references in the New Testament that may be coming from Nahum. And it's written about Nineveh. Nineveh. Y'all know Nineveh, don't you? If you didn't know that we were talking about Nahum today, and I told you I was preaching to you about Nineveh, every one of you would have said Jonah and the big fish, right? Because God called Jonah to go to Nineveh. But that was a couple weeks ago when we studied that. And this, in many ways, in the Word of God, is like a part two to Nineveh. And while they turned back with Jonah's preaching, the book of Jonah is more about Jonah than it is about Nineveh. We learned that. And while they turned back at Jonah's preaching to them to repent, a century later, they had gone back to their ungodly ways. So about a hundred years later, God sends another prophet, Nahum, to them, and it is over. God is finished with Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, a very, very strong, powerful nation. And in the book of Nahum, God's message comes that he is finally going to uh, punish them and destroy them. But that's what it's about. And if you're not careful, and if you just read it quickly or flippantly, you may get this idea that you don't understand how it could be of God or, or good. Nahum means comfort. If you don't know that, you need to. They, they say that Nahum is a, is a shortened version of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah means God comforts. Nahum just means comfort. So you read this book of Nahum, these three chapters, this minor prophet, and you think, comfort? 
See, here's the deal. Comfort can only come from God. If you think you found comfort from somewhere other than God, be warned. It is not comforting you. And if it is temporarily, it won't be for long. What many of you all do not know is that Joe just sang a very meaningful song, right? And we loved sitting there seeing that. Joe's father passed away two days ago. I called Joe on Friday and I said, Joe, if you want to take the day off Sunday, by all means. If you want to be with your mother or your family, take it easy, lay low, just go to church, whatever, you do that. But Joe knows something that we all need to know. His comfort, his family's comfort, is the Lord. And so while they need to take some time to grieve and mourn, the truth of God, the truth of God's word, and the truth of those songs that he just sang, even holding back tears, the truth of those is their comfort. The book of Nahum is about comfort. The comfort is that God is comforting. And so if you want to find comfort somewhere else other than God, you will not find it. If you are seeking to find uh, love or support or strength or attention or praise or whatever it is people seek, status, wealth, recognition, If you're wanting those things, approval from anything else other than God, you are wrong. And what happens from us seeking it outside of God is because it's not right, because it's not good, because it's not good for us, it hurts us. Sin is so sneaky and deceptive and it's like a spider web and the devil's like a snake that we don't understand that what is not good for us is damaging us. It is breaking us down. It is twisting us. It's making us think we can find comfort in other places, but it's not. We're not comforted. God comforts. And so after warning, after warning, after warning to Nineveh, and warning, after warning, after warning to Assyria, and even we know about the warning somewhat with the book of Jonah and the message to them, God has said, if you will not look to me and trust me and how I love you and how I'm your creator and how I'm the one that takes care of you and I'm the one who will save you and forgive you and rescue, if you will not look to me, then I will judge you and punish you. This is the message of God. And this is what Nahum is about. So while to Nineveh it is a message of punishment, listen to me, To those who believe God, it is a message of comfort. God comforts those who trust him. God is the comfort to those who love him. God is the comfort to his 
people. That is comforting. And so you have that going on in Nahum, and if you were to just breeze through this really quickly without giving any thought or prayer to it, you might miss that. If you look, there are three chapters, 15 verses in chapter 1, 13 verses in chapter 2, 19 verses in chapter 3, and the whole thing is what God is saying he's going to do to Nineveh finally. It starts off really strong, and I want to show you, and I really just want to walk through the first eight verses today. Beginning in verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So there it's to Nineveh. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Nahum is so serious about this. Again, you know, some books in the Bible are very complex, right? And they're long, and there's a lot to think about, and there's many different themes, and many different ideas come up. And other ones, especially the short ones, are pretty simple, right? Not a lot to be said, not a lot of introduction or whatever. I've told you what Nahum's about. It's a message against Nineveh, and Nahum comes straight with it. The very first verse of what he's trying to say, verse 2, is the character of God. And so while God is comfort to those who trust him, God is wrathful to those who oppose him. He's jealous. He is avenging. Three times in one verse, you have avenging, avenging, and vengeance. Verse 3. In case you might ever misunderstand the character of God. Nahum reminds us that the Lord is slow to anger. I know you all know somebody who is quick-tempered, right? And perhaps all of us men would say, at times, I can be quick-tempered. I don't know about the women. Val never really gets quick-tempered. But you know somebody who can be quick-tempered, and we hate that we're quick-tempered. We know the phrase hot-head, and we know that it is a bad thing to be hot-headed. And let me remind you that God is not that. God is slowly angered. God is patient. God does not react flippantly, harshly, in a way that he shouldn't. God doesn't do something and then quickly regret that he did that. And no, God is slow to anger, although he is great in power. God knows and processes and thinks through. And Nahum is describing God because what he's about to tell Nineveh is heavy. So we got to make sure it's right. There is a time to be angry. Certainly you know that. But make sure you're angry in the right reason, for the right purpose, and in the right way. Make sure you're not sinful in your anger. We learned this about Jesus, that he could be angry and not sin. And so in the Old Testament here in these minor prophets, we see God is angry, yet he's not wrong. He's not sinful. He is slow to anger. He is great in power. But look what it says, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. God rightly punishes those that deserve to be punished. 
And yet, even with God saying that, we know that for whoever is in that category, listen to me, including us, do not quote Josh Green. Do not leave First Baptist Faradell thinking that we came here today saying those guilty people need to be punished. Us good people don't. No, all who are guilty before God, which is everybody, can be forgiven in the sense that God gave his son for the guilty. For God so loved us and the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. And whoever does not believe in the son will perish, the Bible teaches, plain as day. He will by no means clear the guilty. We are all guilty. Salvation is in him. Then he goes on and says his way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Nahum gives us a grand picture of what it's like for God to be angry. It's not like me when I just start raising my voice and trying to upset everybody in my house because I'm upset. It's not like that. Right? It's not like somebody who starts throwing things and you're like, oh, duck your head, give him his five minutes, he'll get over it. God's anger disrupts, affects, has the power to affect everything. Mountains and rivers and lands and places and the people in those places. Do you remember? And I know that so many people don't even believe it, but we do. Do you remember when God recognized early on that all of man was evil continually? Every thought even of man in early times of creation was only evil continually. Everything in every way was evil, the Bible describes in Genesis chapter 6. And so God didn't throw a fit. He didn't start raising his voice. He didn't anger like we did. He said, I'm going to get rid of everything, including the people, including the animals, everything. And so he did. And the entire earth was affected by that. Nahum is describing that when God gets angry and will by no means clear the guilty, when God starts to take out his punishment on somebody, it is serious. And who can stand before it? Folks, there is a notion today. And, and you know it's awkward for me to preach on this. I, I understand in 2018, people don't believe in hell. People don't believe in judgment. I realize that many people don't even believe in sin. Nothing is wrong. And so I realize that if you agree, then we are oddballs. If you don't agree, then you're thinking right now that I'm an oddball for preaching this. 
Now, there is so much among us where people mock God and his judgment and hell. I hear people say they want to go to hell. I hear people flippantly tell other people, I hope you go to hell. We don't even need to talk about hell. They don't understand God. If the earth is shaken and melting and absolving and and messed up because of the anger of God, you don't want to anger God. You don't. Who cares what everybody outside of here that doesn't believe this is telling you about whether you're all right or they're safe or there's comfort? There's not. Please listen to the word of God. Who can stand before God's anger? Who can? And the answer is nobody. His wrath, verse 6, is poured out like fire. And the, bro- and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. And then he says this. And this is where we're going to spend all of our time today. The Lord is good. Now, if you don't think and you don't like to think and you're very, 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 very easily frustrated and upset and stressed out, which many people are these days, you want to say... Well, I don't think one through seven can be true. Either seven's true or one through six is true, but how can one through seven be true? And there are lots of people that say that, right? No. There is a right place to be angry, and there is a time where it's good that you are angry. If you have a job interview for a job that you really need, and you get foolish and watch YouTube videos too late in the night and therefore oversleep your alarm and miss your job interview, should you be mad at yourself? And all the old people are like, yes! And all the young people are like, oh, well, I mean... Yes, you should be mad at yourself. You should be angry about that. There is a place. Obviously, that one doesn't even seem that bad. But there are times where you should be mad about things. Now, be careful on determining which ones, but there are. There are. Nahum is describing the anger of God in his grand power. He's jealous. He's avenging. He is slow to anger. He has great power. The whole earth will be dealt with when his anger comes. Who could stand before it? But the Lord is good, verse 7. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. Praise the Lord. There is a comfort in our trouble. There is an answer. There is a solution. There is a God that comforts when we need comfort. There is a place where you can run when you are, when, when, he, when he is angry. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And look what it says. He knows those 
who take refuge in him. And this is where we're going to stay for the rest of the time today. He knows those who take refuge in him. Now, so what's happening with this book of Nahum is that now Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, has been so evil and so ungodly that God is sending this final strong message to them that he's going to punish them and destroy them. That's what Nahum's about. If you got that, you've got it. But in the midst of three chapters of that message coming from Nahum, he says here that God is good, God is a stronghold in the day of trouble, God knows those who take refuge in him. So while you're hearing, okay, while Nineveh is hearing this, that it's bad and, 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 and that God is against you and that God is angry, there is an entire world, there's an entire idea, there is a whole category of I don't want him to be angry with me. I want to turn away from his anger. I want to find comfort. Where can I find help? Lord, help me. There is a running for refuge. There is a refuge in the midst of this. And Nahum tells us this. Here's what it got me thinking about. As I was studying and preparing and praying for this, it got me thinking about my parents. I don't know how much you think about your parents. I know everybody's relationship is different with your parents. But I love my parents. I think often about how much I owe to them. They've been so good to me. They raised me. They loved me. They were involved. Right now we're in this crazy season of our kids are doing so many different things and we're all over the place. And Every time my parents call me or I call them, my mom says, Oh, I remember those days. They were so nice, so enjoyable. Love that. And I love my parents. I think about my dad setting me up and teaching me how to pitch baseball, leaving for work and telling me, uh, here's what I need you to do while I'm at work, do this so many times, and when I get home, we'll talk about it. I remember my mom teaching me so many good things. I remember my mom going to school with me. I remember my mom disciplining me. I remember my mom loving on me so well. I remember having such a good relationship with my mom. I remember one time when my dad was working second shift. He didn't work second shift long, but he got home at like 10 o'clock from second shift, and he had a little motorbike in his truck. And we were already in bed, and he's like, man, I got you a motorbike. Come outside. It's a little 50cc motorbike, so small, and he somehow got he, me and him on it. And he rode me around. It got me out of bed to do that. But I remember that, right? I remember burning my leg on the motor when I started driving it by myself. Still have a scar from that. And I could go on and on with that. I remember them being hard on me, disciplining me. I remember them being, at times, angry with me. And now, what I want so badly is for them to know how much I love them, how thankful I am for them, how much I appreciate them, how much I want to, in, in many ways, be to my children the way they were to me. I look often, okay, what was my dad like to me? What was my mom like to me? How can I be that way? And I want so badly, honestly, honestly, I want so badly to make them proud. I want 
to make them proud. I don't know how you do that. We're, we're constantly trying to uh, live for God and you know, be the best person that we can be. But I want them to be proud. Many of you all have never met my parents. And so what happens is you form an opinion of my parents based off of what you see in me. For better or for worse, right? That's how parenting goes. But they're my parents. And all that that I just described goes into me being their child and them being my parents. That is a small example of what it's like to be a human created by God, made in his image. God made you and I like God. Inside of us are things that resemble God. Now it's flawed, and we've sinned against him, but we are made by God. And God, so much more than being a parent to us, is the perfect ultimate father to us. He is the perfect parent, if you will, for all the ways that our, that our families are great and yet our families have all types of issues. They are flawed, but God is not flawed. He is the ultimate perfect father in every way. He is a father to his children and even a good father to his children. And he made us. And yet he's not just a parent to us. He is a God to us. He is the only God, the sovereign God. He is the creator God to us, the holy and perfect and sinless God over us to which he made us, he owns us, he will deal with us, and we owe everything back to him. So there is in us, I hope, a desire to make our father proud like I have, but also in us, uh, 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 we were made to worship him. I was not made to worship my mom and dad. I was made to honor them. That's why in the fifth commandment of the ten it says, honor your father and mother. You were made to honor your parents, but you were not made to worship them. And so that's where the analogy, like all analogies, eventually breaks down, right? God is a father to us in which we should want to make him proud and honor him, but he is so much more than a father to us. He is our God. He owns us. We have sinned against a holy God and he is, deserves our worship. And so that is a problem. And what Nahum brings to light here is that God made people and there are people like the Ninevites who do not care about God. They do not think about God. They have no regard for God. And when God is brought up to them like it was with Jonah, they, they turned back for a little bit, but very quickly, they, within a century, they had gone back to living without regard to God. God says to do this, well, we do this. God says to do this, well, we do this. And they are an ungodly people. And so not only are they not making God proud or they're not honoring him, but they are sinning against their maker, and that is bad. That is very, very bad. It is wrong, and it should be met from God with his right, just anger. And this is what Nahum is describing. If my parents have been good parents to me, and we know that Good parent is so relative, but if they have, and you knew that, and you, some of you have met my parents, and I was to stand up here, or I was to live 
totally shaming them and tearing them down and lying about them and ignoring them and no pride and no honor and no credit and nothing but hate and indifference and disrespect and all of that toward them, you should think, that's bad. That is bad, Josh. You should not be that way toward your parents. And so... This is where the analogy is very helpful. People are that way toward God. The Ninevites have been that way toward God. And so God now has the prophet come to them and say, I'm going to judge you. But there is a refuge. There is a refuge. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So now I want to quickly give you four examples of those that are his. God knows those that are his, right? God knows those who are his. That's what it says. He knows those who take refuge in him. So four examples of those who are known by God. Notice that I'm not saying four examples of those who know God. You can say that, and the Bible does teach that, but today I'm saying those that God knows, all right? If I ask you or somebody asks you, are you a Christian or do you know God? You will say yes, and if you're not, you want to quickly get out of the conversation. You don't want to provide any proof that you know God or that you believe in him. You want to check a box that you're Christian, but you don't want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You want to say that you're a Christian, but you don't want to walk by faith. You'd rather walk by sight. This is not what I'm talking about. So instead of saying those that know God, I'm saying those that God knows because that's what Nahum says. God knows those. And so if we were to ask today, do you know God, maybe you would say yes. But if we could ask God, God, who in here do you know, perhaps you would get nervous. Yes, we would get nervous. Or at least some would. So four characteristics. The first comes from right here, Nahum 1.7. The first characteristic of those that are known by God is that those people known by God Take refuge in him. Refuge is not a light word. Refuge is I have to find safety. Refuge is I have to find a place where things will be okay because they're not okay. I need to find a place that is safe because I'm not safe, right? Notice that God points out those who trust in him in the day of trouble. Those who find the stronghold in the day of trouble. Those who are finding him for refuge against this strong passage. He has just said who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is not something very simple and shallow. This is not check a box or this is not sign a piece of paper. This is an angry, holy, wrathful God and how can I be safe? There is safety. There is safety. Those that know God are those that know he is their refuge. They will admit that they are not perfect. They will admit that they are not altogether good. They will admit specifically what their sins are. 
I know that for some people, the extent that you have ever prayed to God is, God, forgive me of my sins. And I want to warn you that if that is the extent of how you have confessed your sin to God, then perhaps you've never admitted what your sins are. And if you've not admitted what your sins are, then perhaps you're not sure what your sins are. And if you're not sure what your sins are, how, how have you fled to Christ for forgiveness for said sins? Is he a refuge to you? If the river is rising and we're about to be flooded to death, we need a boat. If your sins are offensive to God, if you have sinned against God and he is rightly angered against you, then you need a refuge. Have you confessed to him what your sin is? Those who take refuge in him, like he brags on here in verse 7, know that they need salvation. They know they need to be saved. And they know that salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus. They know that the reason why Jesus is a real thing is because God sent him to us that we would see God in the flesh. And that holy man, Jesus, died on the cross when he should not have died. He died on the cross loving us as a sacrifice for us. And those who understand that see the work of Christ happening on the cross for them run to that and they embrace that. They love the cross. They love the one who died on the cross. They celebrate the cross. They celebrate that the one that died on the cross was buried in the grave. And three days later, later, trumping everything in the world, Christ is victorious. Nothing can stop him. And if Christ is your hope, that's your refuge. And the Lord says here, in the midst of all the victory, Vengeance talk, God knows those who take refuge in him. Is he your refuge? Is he the only thing you can cling to? Is he your comfort, to use Nahum's name? Number one, they take refuge in him. Number two, another characteristic of those that are known by God is they know God. In John chapter 10, verse 14, that's the passage where Jesus gives us the I am statement, I am the good shepherd. John 10, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Christianity is a relationship with God. Christianity can be defined as a religion, but it's not simply religious in that we just do things. You can talk about Christianity as the things that we do. We do go to church, right? We do read the Bible, we do take the Lord's Supper, we do do baptisms, we do lots of things. But the reason why we do lots of things is because we have come to know God. We know him. I know what he's like. I know how he feels about certain things. I know how he feels about other things. I know the things that God doesn't like and that anger him. I know the things that God loves and he delights in, right? I know that God will let me talk to him anytime. I woke up this morning, head on my pillow, praying for Joe Weaver because I was thinking about that and him having to lead worship this morning with a heart. I wasn't even out of bed yet and I was already praying for Joe. I know that God can hear our prayers anywhere. I know that God feels certain ways. I know that there are times when God wants me to run to him and give whatever situation it is over to him. We know what God is like. Beyond knowing what God is like, we know what God thinks about certain situations, right? I know what God thinks when I'm working so much that I never get to see my wife, right? What about if I'm so busy that I have not even kissed my wife on the cheek or the forehead or even better, the lips, right? What if I have not done that in so long because I've just been a workaholic? I know how God feels about that. I know there's a balance and a tension between working and providing and yet at the same time being there for my family, 
that all of us need to figure out. And I know that God speaks to that. Right? And we could pick up any category, but we know what God says. Christianity is not this group of people who are so insecure in what they think they are as a Christian or so insecure in what they believe about God that that there's really no security. No, we know God. We know God. Jesus says, I lead them. I know who they are and they know who I am. This is a clear relationship here. Number one, they take refuge in him. Number two, they know God. Number three, they follow Jesus. In the same passage, he says, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. We are followers. We are not Mr. Independent, okay? Right? We are not, I do things my way only, We are not, well, that's just the way he is. We've got all of these phrases, these catchphrases in our culture that we describe of somebody that we think are good things. No. People that know God, people that have come to him for refuge are people that follow Jesus. There's a constant work going inside of me to stop being this rebellious, do things the way I want to, live the way I want to, and yet to fall in line behind the Lord Jesus. Not fall in line the way other people want you to live. So don't quickly dismiss my point. Fall in line behind Jesus, the one who loves you and gave his life for you. The one who took this wrath in Nahum for you. Jesus, we follow him. Here's a real simple question to ask about following, about discipleship. Are there things in your life that you can identify, and hopefully there would be many, but maybe there aren't. Are there things in your life that you can identify that the only reason you do them is because you follow Jesus? Should be several. And if not, you may not follow Jesus. You may go to church, but you don't follow Jesus. Are there things that you do, and the only reason you do them is because you follow Jesus? And then flip it. There should be things in your life that the only reason you don't do them is because you follow Jesus. There are things we do, and there are things we don't do. This is a study. If I I could write a book, a, a great book that could be written, are all the things in the Bible that it says we don't do. Here's what I mean. It talks about a lot that we do, but it also talks about that that we don't do. There is both there. And when you are following Christ, you are so wanting to identify with him that you think about, okay, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And what does it mean to follow Jesus on things that we don't do? The things that we do and the things that we don't do. Jesus says, they hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. In all of these passages, you have God saying, I know them. The security here is not that we are professing to have known God, but the security here is that God says, here's how you know that I know them. They come to me for refuge. They know me back. They follow Jesus. And lastly, they love God. 1 Corinthians 8, 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is how you come to know God. And this is how you come to love God. When God makes you his own. 
When one comes to the realization that you need refuge and you need salvation and you need forgiveness and Christ is the answer, when, come, when somebody comes to that and therefore you run to Jesus, you bow your knee, you confess your sin, you cry out to him and you say, Jesus, would you save me? Would you forgive me of my sins? I believe that you are Lord. I believe that you're Savior and I put all of my trust in you. When somebody does that, they are coming to love God because they know how much God loves them. And when you come to know God, it is because God has known you. And we have this being explained to the Corinthian church. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And we understand love so well. Man, I was pumped on Tuesday night. I love basketball. I especially love college basketball. And North Carolina played at seven and Duke, Kentucky played at nine. And I sat there for four straight hours and watched both games. I loved it. The Duke, Kentucky game didn't tip till after 10 o'clock. It didn't end till 1230. It was late. I was thinking, this is bad. And now that I think about it, seven to 12 is five hours. What a lazy bum. But I enjoy it, right? We are not at a loss for what love means. Now, our culture has watered it down, right? Because I love tacos, I love basketball, I love Val, and I love God. Well, that waters it down, doesn't it? But the Bible makes clear that those known by God love God. Do you love him? Will you be thinking about him tomorrow? Joe gave us a throwback in the songs today, Blessed Be the, the Name of the Lord. That's such an old song, but it was a good one. And we just sang, you give and take away. When God is taking things away from you, do you still love him? When God is taking away the good things or the things that you identify as good things, which God will do sometimes to check to see if you love him, to cause you to be more dependent upon him, when God is doing that, do you still love him? The Bible says those known by God love God. So four characteristics of those that are known by God... They take refuge in him because they need salvation. They know God because he knows them as the good shepherd. They follow Jesus because they have become his sheep and he is their shepherd. And they follow him and they love God. Now, in the reality of the world that we live in, this is not as clear as it ought to be. I wish it was super clear. If you want to understand how muddy it is, imagine being a pastor we have so many people that claim to be Christians, right? We have so many people that claim to be a part of our church. We have people saying, I'm their pastor that I don't even know. Imagine, right? We have people claiming to be a part of our church that don't want to come to church, right? This is a reality. And so it gets super muddy. And so Brian yesterday read the passage from 2 Timothy 2, and listen to what it says. Paul says, Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Churches are not to be those who get in arguments over petty things. We're not to get in arguments over he said, she said. We're not to get in arguments over what does this word mean in a way that is unhelpful. It ruins the hearers. You ever heard of a church that got to argue over something they shouldn't got argued over and people got ruined over it? Yes. 
Paul says, don't be that way. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Believers are to be wanting to be the best believer they can be. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Timothy, put that before them. How do you do that? The end of verse 15 says, rightly handling the word of truth. What you need in your life, if you want to be a believer is the word of God. It's just the honest truth. It's the formula. God uses his word to make you more like Christ. He says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. And then he names two people. Paul's bolder than me. He names two people in their midst who say they're Christian and a part of their church, and they're not. He says among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. They used to identify as those that know God and follow the scriptures and follow Jesus, but now they do not. They say that the resurrection has already happened, meaning the return of Christ. It has not. They are upsetting the faith of some. But listen to what Paul tells Timothy here. Verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. Remember when I said at the beginning that Nahum is not quoted in the New Testament? If you have cross-references in your Bible, it cross-references Nahum 1.7 on that verse. It doesn't seem to be coming straight from Nahum, but it's quoting the idea that God knows. And honestly, what happens is those that claim to know God are not always those that do. So Paul writes to Timothy that there is comfort in knowing. God knows. Church, may it be our desire to make clear with our lives, with our faith, with our daily walk, God knows who we are. God knows that we trust in Christ. God knows that he's our refuge. God knows that we know him back. God knows that we follow Jesus. And God knows that we love him. God writes this letter through the prophet Nahum to the Ninevites. And it is a strong message of the wrath of God against Nineveh. But it's about comfort for those who will take refuge in him. That strong message of judgment, God has sent out to everybody in the world, all peoples in all places. The message of comfort still remains. Jesus died to save you. Anybody can trust in Christ. God loves you and will forgive you of your sins if you run to him, may we trust him. May he be our refuge. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you, God, that we can be known by God and may it be our identity that we do. Father, thank you for the comfort that there is 
in Jesus. Father, we pray that you would lead us now to identify ourselves with you. May we not take lightly when you are angered. May we run to you for forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.